Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify. Hey friends, today's podcast is going to come from my panel discussion at Secure Miami on May the 4th, hosted at FIU, Florida International University, in partnership with Digital Era Group. Shout out to Digital Era Group and to FIU for putting on really an amazing event and experience, just bringing people together to talk about such an important topic. And I had the privilege of covering was the future of public cloud security, emerging technologies and trends. Today's panel, we covered everything from securing the multi-cloud environment to the pros and cons. We also talked about the proliferation of data coupled with the rapid increase in cloud security tools, along with the financial and cost optimization and how that ties in to public cloud security. We wrapped up with the skills gap and workforce challenges. We had a fantastic session and I wanna give a shout out to all the panelists who joined on and today's discussion starts now. And before we kick off today's episode, I wanna give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagara is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagara offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. I host a podcast called The Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. If you're in the public sector, um, you'll love this. We love sharing human-centric stories with CIOs and technology leaders. So today we have Helvi Longoria Siso here at FIU. Hey, can we give it up for FIU and Digital Era? Come on, can we give it up? Thank you. And Andrew Phillips, Senior Director of Engineering at ShareFile. Michelle Jackman, Cloud Security Leader at Palo Alto. And Julie O'Brien, Chief Marketing Officer at Daz. Welcome. Helvi, let's start with you. For those who don't know you, just a little bit of context on yourself, and then let's just jump right into securing a multi-cloud environment. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming out to FIU. Uh, we're very happy to have you here and host this wonderful conference. Uh, so a little bit about myself. I, as I was going to mention, I am the Chief Information Security Officer here at FIU, responsible for end-to-end -end security, uh, operational incident response, you name it. It falls under the, the umbrella of the CISO office. Um, I've been in security for over 20 years, and I've been here at FIU for over 20 years. So my career has been here at FIU. And I've seen it grow, and I've seen how security has evolved in higher education as well as in the industry. To your question about securing a multi-cloud environment, that is a very loaded question. And to your point, I could spend hours talking to you it, about it's it. It's very loaded. It's very uh, loaded. Just because there's so many different... Uh, aspects of security in the cloud, right? When we started looking in the cloud a few years ago, you were concerned about the infrastructure and how that was going to alleviate some of your security controls moving to the cloud. Then we started looking at DevOps and applications in the cloud and how are you securing those? Yeah, you have admins and developers and everybody's in the cloud now, right? So now we have to make sure that they get the training and understand the 
how critical it is to understand security around what they do and the importance of it, because once you're in a cloud, you've lost your perimeter and you've lost the, wall, the four walls that could protect that information, right? Looking at tools is important, and as we mentioned when we spoke a couple weeks ago, in a multi-cloud environment, you have to load the clouds for the different cloud environments you're at, right? So are we looking at cloud-native applications? And if you're in a multi-cloud environment, what does that mean to your security team that's already very lean and very few people, right? And where are your expertise when it comes to that? So what are the tools, and I'm hoping to get some information from the folks around the table that we can leverage around being more centric when it comes to a multi-cloud environment and how we can better secure our applications around the different technologies, the applications, and the development that we're doing in the cloud. That's great. Before I jump in on the other panelists, curious, just a few pros and cons that you're seeing today that other CISOs and security professionals should weigh when it comes to securing multi-cloud environment? There's a lot of, you can have both, right? A lot of pros and cons. The, the, one of the cons, which is also a pro, is the ease of use of the cloud, right? You can throw workloads up into the cloud very easily. You can have servers running in minutes, but you may lose, if you don't have a good process and a good governance model on how it has to be documented, you can lose visibility, you can lose sight very quickly, right? Yes, the cloud will tell you how many systems you have and you can have reporting off of that, but you need to make sure that the processes are developed and educate your team on that those exist and where they exist and where they need to go when there's a problem, right? The other challenge is going around the code development. A lot of it is software-based, right? We're spinning up networks, creating networks in the cloud, all software-based. How are those being assessed for vulnerabilities? How are those being assessed and how are those being secured and protected? It allows us to move faster and allows us to create redundancies and high availability. And in South Florida, for example, hurricane season, we don't have to worry about it, resiliency around that. But it does pose a lot of risks, and you have to understand what applications are out there, what kind of data is out there, right? And where is this data residing, and how are you securing it? Yeah, that's great. Andrew, we were talking offline. You've got some great background from Deutsche Bank and a lot of the, the past engineering that you've been able to do. Could you maybe just jump in on the pros and cons on securing a multi-cloud environment? Andrew Phillips. I'm with Cloud Software Group now, running the engineering for the ShareFile business unit. My history is predominantly as a software engineer, not in the security space, and ran for Swipe a number of years, the engineering and cloud deliveries for that. And then for Deutsche Bank, I got their environment set up for GCP. So I led the cloud engineering as well as the security layer that they built to secure it. So, yeah, multi-cloud is really hard, especially as you have engineers that are not comfortable even in one environment, right? They don't know how to do set up infrastructure as code properly. How do you protect that? How do you protect the assets that you're delivering? Yeah, the way you get through that is really good policies, really good guardrails, and protecting them from themselves. Because the only way that organizations like Deutsche Bank, like ShareFile, are able to accelerate is by enabling those engineers to really use and, and enable those technologies but yeah, they're not going to know how to secure them properly. Even if you give all the policies, you've got to really protect them. Julie or Michelle, do you want to kick off next? Just a little bit of background on yourself and then securing. Sure. Michelle Jackman, I'm currently at Palo Alto Networks where I lead the Prisma Cloud Solution Architects for the entire East Coast. 
previous to that, I was at Microsoft. I just recently joined uh, Apollo earlier this year. At Microsoft, I held a variety of roles, including being one of only three advanced security Azure principal architects as a global black belt and being a director in the corporate tech strategy team. So I've spent a lot of time talking to the world's largest customers and all kinds of customers up and down this East Coast now about what challenges they see in multi-cloud and definitely always focused in on that from even an Azure perspective and, and Microsoft's um, stance on being a cybersecurity provider. And then um, with Prisma Cloud, as or you may or may not know, the focus is being able to secure multi-cloud and having that not only the cloud security posture management, hey, what do you have in across your entire cloud state, but also being able to protect that and remediate it through the entire CNAP platform where there's code to cloud, data security, code security, identity security, and, and all of that. So I think that I'll just pivot into that is that's one of the ways that when I talk to CISOs that they get a handle on what they have. So they have all of this, their private data in the cloud, they have all these critical workloads, different cloud providers provide different functionality, or maybe you want redundancy and resiliency. So you're in AWS, you're in GCP, you're in Azure. How do I get a handle on that? And so we all know and have heard, oh, you can't control what you can't see. So visibility is one of you know the first things. How do we see what we have out there? How do we ensure it's compliant with our security policy, industry regulations? And then how do we get alerted on what can we fix, what's not right, what's misconfigured? The, always the low-hanging fruit, the number one cause of breaches in the cloud is, cloud, is misconfigurations are all of checking, like, do you have a WAF or DDoS if you have a public-facing IP address and just stuff like that. So being able to discover all your assets, do they meet your security requirements? That's one of the biggest things. In addition, we're seeing more and more trends towards modern development in the cloud. And that's one way when I talk to CISOs that they're building security in from the get-go, right? If your developers are empowered because of the tools and everything that your code and your apps running in the cloud are already secure, then that's one less thing they have to worry about. And I guess so. That, those are like the main topics that, you know, hey, everyone knows these are top of mind. We've been trying to address these for a long time. And then some of the other things that I hear more and more CISOs talking about are, okay, how do we get a handle on our cloud security estate? Oh, now there's all this new stuff. We haven't even figured out how to take care of the current or the old stuff yet. Now I have to worry about AI and ML, the current economic and political situation, quantum resiliency, how do I prepare for these new emerging threats? And that's a real game changer. And I think it's really interesting on AI because we talk about how it's both a challenge and an opportunity. It can empower us uh, to analyze massive data sets, find patterns that the human eye can't see. It can learn, but it also can provide us too much data where we're overwhelmed and then we're actually not getting the security insights. There's also the consideration of how do we secure the training sets that the ML is learning from 
so that there's not malicious or bias built into that by attackers to then influence our security outcomes. I'll pause there in case you have any follow-up questions or anyone wanted to add to that, but definitely have a lot on AI and ML. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. We're going to we're going to come back to that. Julie, if you just want to introduce yourself real quick, and then any thoughts on securing a multi-cloud environment. Yes. Hi, everybody. My name is Julie O'Brien, and I spent many years at Cisco, Nutanix, very focused on multi-cloud environments there, more from the hyper-converged infrastructure space. Box, good technology, Attack IQ, and have made my way to this brand-new company called Daz, where I'm the chief marketing officer. Flew down from Boston, so it's great to be here. It's finally starting to warm up in the Boston area, but love the Miami heat. Very sad about the Bruins. Very happy to all the Floridians out here, though. Congratulations. <laughs> I love the Miami heat, by the way. Like, both the basketball team, but I'm also talking about the weather here, because I live in Southern California, and it's still really cold. It's 60 degrees, 55, and I was out last night, and it was fantastic. It was probably 78 I had a glass of rosé with some, it was fantastic. Highly recommend, if you don't get out, definitely go out and check out downtown Miami. Michelle, let's just jump back to you real quick. The proliferation of data coupled with the rapid increase in cloud security tools introduces new security risks. You touched on this. That makes securing a multi-cloud environment tough. What are the latest trends and challenges that you're seeing today that CISO should keep top of mind in today's cyber threat landscape? Yes, furthering on that topic, I would say the proliferation of data and tools is both a challenge and an opportunity, right? So top of mind with um, a lot of people in this current economic client, climate is vendor consolidation, tool consolidation. Hey, I have all these really cool security tools because I have all these different things I need to secure in the cloud. I have to think about the different cloud providers and the different threat landscape that exists in those cloud providers. So then maybe I have different tools for that. How do my tools integrate with, my, with each other for cloud, with my on-prem tools? And do I have any gaps in my security capabilities? So that is something that is being talked about all the time, vendor consolidation, tool consolidation, the pros and cons of that. Maybe there's a, an opportunity for cost savings or ease of management, but then also what do you give up in regards to that? Yeah, Helvi, I'm curious. I was with Bill. I think his last name's Hunkapiller. I'm, I'm totally blanking on it. I was in San Diego with him, and he's at Florida State. And I was talking to him afterwards, and I knew this was coming up, and so I was curious. I, I'm not going to give away what Bill said, but I'm curious from you from FIU standpoint and your perspective. What are some of those top challenges right now that you're seeing in a higher ed here across campus as far as having to try and secure and love to get the kind of the public sector perspective on that. I think like it was said by Michelle, you, you can't secure what you don't know exists. Putting a lot of governance around new applications, purchase of SaaS-based applications, because that's ultimately in the cloud, and what kind of data and data sharing is coming around that. Understanding the types of regulations we have to follow and make sure that these vendors are compliant and have a very stringent onboarding process to make sure that these vendors are, are complying with our security standards, right? Um, it, we also need to understand um, who's administering the applications from an identity perspective. What kind of access? Are they super users, right? Does it mean that they get to do everything? 
um, because now everybody can be a cloud admin and now there are security admins too, right? So going back to what I mentioned earlier around training, we have to make sure that our staff is trained, both the sysadmins, the cloud architects, and the security folks, as well as the DevOps, to make sure that everything's being secured from the, from the foundation, right? If you don't have a solid foundation, you're just going to ask for trouble moving forward. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And what Bill and I were talking about, the, the biggest one was identity. And, and it was just it was really fascinating to hear the perspective of just at Florida State from kids trying to log on to Wi-Fi networks and or not logging on to Wi-Fi networks. And I go, call it that we have identity crisis. We have multiple identities here, right? Yeah. So every higher ed has an identity crisis. So <laughs> it is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, so let's... This, this is really great. So we were talking offline about the financial and cost optimization, especially with today's economic climate, with your deep experience in FinOps. Can you maybe talk about the financial and cost optimization and how that kind of relates to public cloud security? Yeah, it, f finance is, is really important. It's, it's part of the, the boring part for most engineers, but it's so core to, to, to delivering a good product, right? So at ShareFile, I'm responsible for our costs, right? So how are how we bill and charge our users based on their usage of our systems. So having that understanding is critical from an architecture perspective. But that gets deeper in as we talk about how do you manage those costs, how do you manage overruns, how do you manage, and we're at a security conference, right? My number one thing, number one indicator of a cloud breach is a FinOps problem. It's you see your spike in bills in Australia when you're a U.S.-based company, you know that you've got a breach, right? It, it takes about... 15 seconds from a key being put on GitHub to it being used by a by threat actor. I've seen it in previous roles. It's really important. When you look at it from a large organization like Deutsche Bank, we couldn't use any of the existing tools that exist in this space because it's too expensive. It's cost prohibitive. Right? So building out that stack is important. Smaller companies, it's, there are some really good opportunities to take advantage of either what the cloud providers have or some vendors that have products in the space. But it also goes into the change in how we secure our products. The past 15 years, we've been using agents on all our VMs and containers, and we've moved to a model in our organization where no agents. We're completely agentless. We track everything at a cloud, uh, cloud level. We can understand it better because, as was talked about last, the last talk, was about context. We have that context of all of our assets and how they relate to every other cloud asset because that's really the power of cloud. People don't realize that the discussions of, well, I, I can't protect what I can't see, I need to see everything, it's all there, right? If you have a strong engineering organization, the APIs are there, available to your teams, multi-cloud or single cloud, where you can really empower them to build up that understanding, pull all that data in, and do some really good data analysis. Are there any other challenges that you're seeing from the financial optimization side? Or I would say, so I was just talking to Maureen Allison, who many of you may know, she's the former CISO of J&J, &J, and asking her what's top of mind in her circles. And the whole discussion around budgets are changing. There's more compression. There's the nice-to-have technology and the have-to-have technology. You need to sharpen your list and understand what that's going to be. And where are the opportunities to drive more efficiency and effectiveness inside the team? And she's been leaning into what we're doing at DAS because automation hasn't really hit cloud security remediation yet. 
and there's so much manual process going through all of the alerts that are being generated by all of the great cloud security control tools that are available, but your security team is really small. That That's not changing. The number of resources that you have, your developer organization is significantly larger, and now you're sifting through all of this information trying to figure out what do I work on first? Where are the critical issues? And having a way to take the manual pain out of that process and automate as much as you can becomes a force multiplier for your small but mighty security team. And also may give you an opportunity to build a bridge with your developer team, who I don't feel this firsthand, but a lot of our IT leaders tell us and CISOs tell us there's a little bit of friction between those two teams. In our recent customer advisory board, one of our CISOs actually called the relationship confrontational. So if there's something that you can do as a leader to, again, improve effectiveness and efficiency in not only the security team but also the engineering and the developer team, then you've got, again, that force multiplier across the organization, not just inside of security. This is great. This is like the huge premise of my podcast because I heard that wasn't a technology problem. That was a human problem, right? That's a human problem. That's a people problem, right? And it always starts with people. I love this. There's a the state CIO in Arizona. I know some of you who are not in the public sector, you're like, this doesn't pertain, but just hold with me. He was interviewed and he said, you've, you've heard it, right? People process technology, and there's a reason why the people come first, and that's exactly why, because if you can't get the team aligned together, my view, the technology doesn't matter. Maybe you disagree, but I think if you can't get the people right, if you can't get the team right, then the technology is not going to matter at all. Helby, do you want to maybe jump in on that? I love the story that you brought in from outside. You said J&J, right? Yeah, I love that. Do you have any other stories there, Helvi? We The audience would love to hear. No, I share the, the, the sentiment and the experience. The way we've been successful is ha building those relationships, right? We need to understand that they're trying to get their job done and we're trying to do our job right. So yeah. not become the, no, you can't, but how can I facilitate what you're trying to do and really try to understand exactly where they're coming from, right? Because if we're up here on the security saying, thou shall not do this, you cannot do that, we're not going to get anywhere. And so that's where you have the conflicts because now we're preventing them, right? And we don't only see that with our DevOps, but here at, in the security at FIU Academic, we have a lot of research, right? And I had a professor tell me not too long ago is our academic freedom, this is where we innovate. This is where we do research. You cannot just start telling us we cannot use certain tools or certain technologies that we need to do our work, right? And my point to her was, no, you're right. I'm here to help you do your research in a protected and secure manner so that your data can stay protected for all your hard work to, to not go away by a breach or somebody taking the information. So definitely build your teams, build your relationships. It's critical. It's not only with your DevOps, but other critical groups across the institution, right? Your audit teams, your compliance, your legal team, you have to build those relationships to be successful because even though you have the power to put policies in and say you have to follow these policies, you're not going to be successful if you don't have the buy-in from leadership and from your core team members as well as your counterparts. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. You have to take a holistic approach, cross-functional, tying all the right people. When I'm advising customers on best practice and I'm talking to those high-level leaders in the security orgs, I always use an analogy of like a sports team and how we're all driving towards the same goal and everyone has a different part to play in that. Um, you can't do it in isolation, right? We can't get 
the, you can take over the sports analogy, Joe, but we can't get that basketball down the court and in the hoop if, if we don't, if we're not all working together, even though we have completely separate functions and we do it in separate ways and we're all good at different things. So that's often an analogy I use and how important it is. And yeah, we all hear relationships, but remember, we all have a shared goal. We're not fighting against each other. Yeah, and the main thing I drive is it's not only my responsibility, it's a shared responsibility, right? So I, every time I do a webinar or a meeting with other stakeholders, I say, you are part of this team and we're in this together, right? It's not your department, my department, it's FIU as a whole, and our goal is to make sure that we can protect and get not be in the headlines and still continue to succeed and be ahead in research and provide a great academics for our students. And I think part of what we've talked about, and I've seen it in a couple of these panels as well, is there's the silos, right, either even within a security organization or across organizations. And that really bothers me as an engineer. And so the way I've been tackling this, right, at our organization, we've flattened. Security is a part of my organization. I run our platform engineering. They sit right next to them. And then I have engineering teams that are building product. They're all working together. There's no silos, right? We have some of the risk is under our legal group, but they dotted line report to me, and we work as one team, right? We can't, we don't have enough time to, to deal with those silos, so all of these teams are working together. They're embedded in engineering teams as they're working on products or dealing with incidents, but yeah, I think that's the way to solve it, is break down those walls. The organizations, especially ones that aren't that big, right? We're like a 750-person business unit, right? But we did the same thing at Deutsche Bank. We, the, I was running cloud engineering, but we were building the products that security was using, and about half the security engineers for cloud reported to me. And that's because we needed to work closely together. We needed to build these tools out. So a number of years ago, there wasn't a lot in that space, and there's no room to have those walls. Yeah, no, that's great. On the basketball court, we're always, I know you're like, this guy always talks about basketball, but I'm sorry. It's like you hang out with kids during the season six days a week. It just gets drilled into you. But there's so many leadership lessons I saw that from that I was learning from the kids that I was thinking the adults should also learn these. And on the court, part of it is communication. And uh, we are constantly preaching to the high schoolers to communicate on defense and on offense. Uh, but if you look at, let's just take the Miami Heat because we're in Miami. If you look at the Miami Heat and if you were to really look at the tape, they are all talking to each other. Like the entire time they're communicating. And I was like, that's what great teams do. They are constantly communicating. They don't, they, basically they remove the ego, right? They remove the ego. They're willing to work. They're willing to rally around FIU, the mission of FIU, the silo, the different departments. I love that. Sorry, I thought I heard something. That was, no? Okay. Julie, there are many tools. So I actually got this, by the way, because I love hopping on past webinars or podcasts. My friend Andrew, this is, he doesn't do podcasts, but that's okay. It's, Joe, I'm a software engineer, but no, that's okay. But Julie, there was, was it the Wisdom Wednesdays? Is that right? Uh, Wednesday Wisdom. Wednesday Wisdom. I'm so sorry. But I got this because there was a webinar and you were on this webinar and you said that there are so many tools from code to cloud that are spinning up and sending detections that are creating alert fatigue for security teams. And this is actually something I've heard a lot of. Could you maybe just talk about the challenges of organizations having to manage what seems like an endless supply of tools in a multi-cloud environment? Wow, that was a long question. <laughs> you asked it. I just repackaged it. <laughs> yeah, I just well, repackaged it. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so I would just say, I had, I had mentioned this earlier, cloud security remediation is broken. We're very good. We're getting actually really good at detecting issues. We're not so good on the fixing side. 
And the challenge is attacks in the cloud can happen super fast, right? Minutes. I think you just mentioned uh, could be 12 seconds, right? But the remediation process hasn't caught up. There's an opportunity, I think, again, to take all of the goodness that's coming out of the tools that are, some of them are here today from Wiz and Sneak and Lacework and correlate that with your dev environment, your cloud environment, create those insights using automation and intelligence that just makes the team stronger and more effective at closing those risk windows, right? We're doing this with Takeda and Blackstone and JLL uh, and many other Fortune 500 companies who have been trying to build some of this on their own because they know it's a problem they need to fix. Like, we've got to figure out how to move faster. Um, and so this is what we're trying to solve. We're trying to take all that goodness that's out there that security teams are already deploying and help make sense out of it, create visibility into where there are shadow pipelines where there may be exploitable secrets that have made their way into pipeline into production pipelines and visibility was mentioned earlier but i think visibility and speed are two gaps that technology can help solve and then all of the communication and the collaboration that we've been talking about which will improve between the teams yeah no i love that so we're going to wrap up on and a very important topic. This always ranks on surveys between the number one priority for CIOs and CISOs and number three. And that's going to be the skills gap in workforce challenges. And and I don't know, I didn't see too many I didn't see too many college students here. There's only a few. But if you run into a college student and you are a leader here, and a leader is not a title by the way, I just mean Hand your business card to them, connect with them. This is an opportunity where you might not have a job for them right now or an internship or anything like that, but it's super important to help people. I know it sounds weird to say out loud, but I'm big on just because I work with kids and high schoolers and then they come back doing this five years now. They come back from college and it's tough to break in, right? Maybe some of you remember how tough it was to break in to the industry and in every state, or almost every state that I've heard, maybe north of 20,000 cybersecurity jobs is the kind of the average shortage, whether it's North Carolina or Florida, you name it, trying to attract talent is hard. It, it could be a single mom, but being on FIU campus today, if there's any college kids out here, just make sure to connect with them. You can pass their business card. And if you go, hey, Joe, I don't have a business card, neither do I, you come up with a solution, right? You're like, hey, here's my email. Or connect with me on LinkedIn. And just seeing, you never know. Uh, there's a lot of companies here uh, in Miami or in Florida uh, that if we can bring in uh, the next generation, that would be hugely Helpful. That's my favor. Thank you. Uh, okay, so now let's jump back to it. So skills gap, workforce challenges. Every organization is struggling with this right now across the board. The hiring marketplace, Helvi, is two-sided, both employers and employees. Let's start. What advice would you give to employers looking for talent in both today and tomorrow's workforce? Well, I think you just advertised it, right? <laughs> I think mentorship and internships are important because you can start at a, in college and develop that pipeline into your business. We have a lot. Our students are very eager, and they want to learn, and they want to get into these large companies, and all of you that we have here. It would be an, a huge benefit for you and for the student. It's a win for both, right? They get to see what it's like to work in a great company, how cyber works, and then make a profession out of it and can build their career within that company. Um, you know, being part of the groups and the organizations that the school has, right, whether we have a hackathon or we have events that students hold themselves, 
you know, come and be part of that and, and you know, let them know what opportunities there are out there. Now in the summer, a lot of students are looking for internships. What opportunities out there? Is there if anything that they can do? They're not always looking to get paid. It's a bonus if we can pay them, right? Uh, but they really just want to learn um, and they understand what cyber is about. And we host interns every summer um, starting in high school. And um, it's amazing to see when they started as freshmen in high school and now some of them are coming to school here and now they're working for us. And it's great because you've seen how their interest has grown and changed, right? And cyber is such a broad area, right? I tell them you don't have to be in engineering, you don't have to be in technology, you could be in marketing, you could be in business. Uh, so it's important that they understand that we need skills at all levels, right? We need people that can communicate the human problem, right? How are we reaching out in the communications to our constituents and our employees on how to be secure and how they need to do that, right? I think it's important to have those pipelines. What does that career path look for, look like? And let them understand that there's something for everybody in cyber. Yeah, from the other side of the house, I'll completely agree. We partner with NC State. We have a really good relationship with them. They have a good cyber program, and we're feeding into that. We do their senior projects, but we're heavily involved with that. So that is the way to get that next generation of talent, which we all need. We don't. I don't want to just have all principals and staff engineers. It's not the right balance, right? So getting the interns and then the junior engineers in, it's really critical. Yeah, and I would just say from a technology uh, vendor perspective, many of us are involved with STEM initiatives and Girls Who Code and trying to really create some interest and in, in skills and visibility into what might be possible as well. So it's great. Can, can I, sorry, real quick, can I speak on behalf of Daz? I'm Rob. I listen to a podcast where, so she's from Israel, right? And she actually does a lot of really great work. She's not here, but I would just, you look up the CEO of Daz, you'll find that out. And she does a lot of really great work with girls, too. She's, she's very active and yeah. really encourages the, the company to give back and volunteer in their respective communities. Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with what all of you have said about developing that next generation with the, the current high school and college students but also a way to tap into a more diverse workforce so that we can counteract the attackers who are very diverse. They might be a kid at home. They might be a teacher that's off work for the summer and board. They might be a nation state actor. They might be someone that grew up in IT. And, and so we should also look to current professionals that are, come from a variety of different backgrounds whether that's someone with a technology background, a teaching background, maybe someone who thinks differently or has different life experiences, because there is nothing that is stopping the diversity and thought of attackers and the diversity of backgrounds, and we're not tapping into that. Mostly we have a bunch of people who are industry professionals, right? So tapping into all of the market that's out there that would bring a different kind of thought to it. Yeah, the, I remember this morning the gal from, I believe it was Darktrace, I think she was the one talking about the LinkedIn terms of service and the hackers, they don't care. They, they don't. Thinking outside, where am I going with this? Thinking outside the box, right? And figuring out the workforce shortages, like the stats will not be also filled by humans. So humans will need the support of AI. When you just look at across the board, there's literally just not enough humans on the planet to fill the giant gap that's there. Let's open this up. I know we've got just a couple minutes before they come back over with another sign. <laughs> Barbara, if you want to ask a question, name where you're from and then the question. And, okay, great. Can we get him a mic by chance? Oh, we, oh yeah. 
Well Sorry. done. That was fast. Thank you. I can't even see that. Go. I'm, I'm Paul Haringer from Hack Notice. We're based in Austin, Texas. And I've been listening pretty carefully. Most of the panels have either stated or concluded that it's actually not a technology problem. It's a people problem. People are the answer somehow. And I would have to say from our perspective, it looks like, and some of you are technology leaders, all of you in the room, but it looks like most of the technology seems to be getting more and more sophisticated and effective at really automating people out of the solution because they make so many mistakes or they have the wrong behavior, right? It's like a, so a lot of people think it's a behavior thing of the people. So you're all leaders in ver of various stripes. So what I'd like to ask you is, how do you think we can change behavior in ways so that people aren't so much part of the problem as dragging them into being part of the solution for anyone? I think part of it is security awareness training, right? So making everybody part of cybersecurity instead of just a security organization at your companies. The other thing to consider, though, is that while there are problems with the human component, there's also the power in that, right? And so we're not going to be able to achieve anything without human plus human plus AI and ML. There's a whole different aspect of, of creativity. So I would say double down on the strengths that humans bring and try to bring everybody into the cybersecurity awareness, whether that's through phishing attacks within your company and just making people more aware. Yeah, and I agree with that, but I also think that you also have to relate to them, right? If you talk to them only about how it's important to protect the organization, that's fine, and we all care about our workplace, right? But you also have to make it that it's their data, it's their personal information that could also be at risk, right? So you need to make it personal. Just like I mentioned in the example with the researcher, it's, yes, it's your information, your hard work that we're trying to help protect, right? It's all the hours you've invested in that research that we're trying to protect. So you have to make it personal. And as I think in the previous panel, the gentleman mentioned that he didn't get into cyber until he was a victim of a cyber attack, right? So once it becomes your problem, now I'm listening, right? So we have to make sure that they understand that this can be your problem. You could be the next victim, whether it's identity theft or a ransomware or your credit card got stolen, whatever the case is, but you have to make it relatable because if you're just talking all these acronyms and saying how you're trying to make sure you're saving the dollars in case of a breach, yeah, they'll listen, but it's not personable. So you have to make sure it hits home. Yeah, and when I look at it from an engineering problem, they're not all going to be experts in security. And so a lot of it's setting them up for success, giving them the tools and the feedback that they need to write better software, write better cloud, right? So we're talking about cloud. If I have an engineer putting out a new product, I need to protect them from putting that database on the public internet and, pr and protecting them from not designing for scale and d doing this with tools, direct feedback, so that they, they have that knowledge. That's how you enable it, is they see that, oh, if I did that actually has a, a direct impact on our security, and they'll, do, they'll deliver software better next time. So. That's great. Well, that's going to wrap up our session today. If you would like to connect with anyone, they'll be outside. If you want to connect with me, I'll be at the cappuccino cart 
in 10 minutes. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify.